satisfy desires of all things. My God and King. my birthday today, and uh, there's few things I'd rather be doing than opening the Word of God with other people on the evening of my birthday. So, glad we can all do this together tonight. We're finishing up a series on the fruit of the Spirit, and we're here with the last one. So let's read these uh, verses, which are hopefully familiar to us by now. I've been, I haven't been able to be here on Sunday nights because of work usually, but um, have been listening and keeping up with them on the internet and, and listening along with all of you and seeking to learn what the Lord has for us. So in uh, Galatians chapter 5, and I would actually like to read verses 16 through 24 because it's going to be relevant for the whole sermon tonight. Galatians 5, 16 to 24. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. And these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Thank God for his word. So I was thinking about this topic tonight of self-control. Uh, my mind went ahead, uh, went ahead and, and backwards in a sense to probably one of the highlights of, of the year for my family, which is 
getting to observe the Olympic Games. Now, the Olympic Games is, is something they've split into, into two now, the winter and the summer, so it comes up much more often. It used to only come up every four years, as most of you know. But the Olympics is, is a great time to observe people who have been in training seeking to perform the absolute best that they can. A lot of them are amateurs, um, but many now have trainers and that sort of thing. But I remember a few years ago watching, uh, many of you are familiar with, uh, the swimmer Michael Phelps, who won a number of gold medals. In fact, he has the record, I think, for the most in a single Olympic Games. But I was, I was astounded because one of my favorite things to watch about this is not just the actual performance of these athletes when they're in their event, but some of the biographies that you get in between all the activities that tell you about what goes into the training process that these athletes go through. It's amazing that in training, a swimmer like Michael Phelps would have to eat 12,000 calories a day. I mean, most the USDA recommends eating 2,000, okay, 12,000. So that's about 4,000 a meal. That's double what we're recommended to eat a day every meal. And then he has to do that multiple times. That's, I mean, part of that menu would be eating at least a dozen eggs per meal. <laughs> at least a dozen eggs per meal. Okay? But that's because he's swimming almost 50 miles a week. That doesn't sound like a lot. But if you know the difference between swimming and running, I could go out and run five miles, no problem right now. But if you put me in the pool and had me swim for about 10 minutes, whew, and, and, and that would be about maybe you know, 400, 500 yards of swimming. Okay? So 50 miles of swimming is quite a bit. But I think we look up to this. We look up to the way that people ha have the ability to master their bodies. They have the ability to, to master their desires in order to focus and get something done that they feel called to do. They recognize they have certain ability and they're going to get this done. And I think tonight we're going to see that in Christianity, when we talk about self-control, we're going to be defining it like this. It's the spirit-empowered mastery of our desires for a greater goal. That's the way I'm defining self-control tonight. The spirit-empowered mastery of desires for a greater goal. Now, you might say, okay, that sounds like a nice definition, but where do, where do you get that from? What, what does that mean? Well, that, that's good that you asked that, because I'd like you to be able to do these kind of studies on your own. And so we're going to walk through just a three-step process to see how I got to that basic definition before we then look at uh, some practical implications for how do we be more self-controlled. Okay, so let's, let's look at where this comes from the Bible first, which I hope you care about, that you're not just going to take my word for it, and then we're going to look at how this applies, how we become more self-controlled. I think the first thing we need to do is define a word in its context. Okay, That's always important because self-control could mean a lot of different things depending on where we find it. So here in our context in Galatians chapter 5, we, we could look at, you know, I could look at a basic Bible dictionary and get a basic definition like this, self-control, self-mastery. Or if we look at the, the little Greek term here, it just means literally getting a grip on yourself. Okay? The word in Greek literally means getting a grip on yourself. Okay? Well, that's helpful. That's nice. Let's see how it fits in here. Okay? Verses 16 and 17. Paul started out, he said, But I say, walk by the Spirit... And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the spirit. Okay, And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. 
for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do, okay? So here he's already set up this sort of battle of desires. And I think that's playing into how we ought to define self-control. It's a mastery of desires at the most fundamental level. That's going to that's going to have implications for our actions, right? Cuz we fundamentally do what we want to do. When when it comes down to it, we do what we want to do. When when we sin, we really wanted to in one sense. And when we, we when we serve people, in one sense God's changed our desires actually, I I'd rather serve this person than over here gratify my desires. And so God is in the business of changing our desires. And I think self-control is about this, getting these desires of the spirit as opposed to these desires of the flesh. And there's this battle in us. And it's important for us to recognize that there's a battle. There's a duel of desires. But then let's look further on. In verse 18, uh, he says, But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under law. Now, here's the works of the flesh. Okay, I'm going I'm to go ahead and categorize these for us because these are all in a sense, different excesses. Things that, that people do to excess or do them inappropriately, all right? Sexual immorality, impurity and sensuality. We could call those excesses of passion, sexual passion. We could look at the next two, idolatry and sorcery as excess of power, desire for power, okay? I mean, if you've ever studied idolatrous societies, people go to these idols because they feel like they can't control things in their lives, and but this idol can help me. And so I go and I make the sacrifice to the idol. They try to manipulate the idol, the god behind the idol, in order to get the things done. Or sorcery, magic, in order to manipulate my circumstances. I get power over other people because I have this magical power, which is connected to the demonic world. Okay, So excess of power. People have this desire for these things. But look at the next list. It just goes on and on. Excess in our relationships, in our personal relationships. Look, he just has a, a huge list of these problems here. Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy. Okay, These are all different ways that our relationships get broken because we have either excessive anger or desire to control people or desire for things from people, and that messes with our relationships. Or lastly, he has drunkenness and orgies and just things like these <laughs> that go on. Excesses of uh, partying, in a sense, in the ancient world is what those would have been. Okay, So all these different excesses of desire, people taking, in some cases, good desires and taking them to a completely ex uh, extreme place or a wrong place. And in doing that, uh, they haven't exercised what I would say is self-control. They haven't mastered these desires, and they let these desires run hog-wild in their life and ends up creating lots of problems. Or let's look at how the passage ended. Verse 24, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its what? Passions and desires. Okay? Crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So it's not just the actions that come from the flesh that we're talking about here. So I think sometimes when we think about self-control, the first place we go is thinking about our actions. Well, I gotta help myself not do this or not do that. But I think more fundamentally, we need to look at it, it's gonna be an issue of desires and not just our actions. So that's, that's where we're coming with that. So if I had to just start here, if I just had to start here in the passage, 
with a definition for self-control. I'd say self-control appears to be a spirit-empowered restraining of excess that allows us then to walk in the way of the spirit. Okay, So in the passage, this seems to be more of an ex a restraint of excess that allows us to walk in the spirit. But when we study words in the Bible, usually the next place we want to go is, well, how does this get used elsewhere in the Bible? That, that's usually the next best step. We've looked at it in the context here. We think we have a, a basic idea. How, where do we go from there? Well, let's look at it at a few other places in the Bible. Acts 24, 25. And, and surprisingly, this word uh, is not actually used that much in the New Testament. Acts 24, 25. Okay, so remember, at this point, Paul is in... He's, he's uh, in chains, basically. He's, he's not allowed to go where he wants to. He's in custody. And... Uh, and here he's before a uh, Roman official, and it says in verse 24 of Acts 24, After some days Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Okay, so Paul is here talking to him about faith in Christ Jesus. And how was that defined? Well, he was talking about three essential things. Righteousness. We have to get right with God. I mean, that's fundamental to our faith. But then the word that Luke uses when he's describing it, he says self-control. I think if we think about righteousness as being a, an initial point to our faith, that in Jesus Christ, by faith, we are justified. We're made right with God. Then we move on to think about self-control. Well, isn't he pretty much talking about the Christian life? He's talking about how, how does a person who has faith in Jesus live? It's a life of self-control. And then the coming judgment. One, two, three. He's talking about how to get right with God. How do we live with faith in Jesus? And then the coming judgment. Okay, That's, that's a summary of Paul talking about faith in Christ Jesus. So self-control is pretty central to the way that Paul is thinking about the uh, Christian life. And it's no surprise, perhaps, then, that he included it last in our list. Okay? Sometimes if you want to emphasize something when you're talking to people, you either put it first or you put it last, don't you? And it's not a surprise, then, perhaps, that Paul put self-control last in the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Let's look at one more passage. 2 Peter 1.6. 2 Peter 1, 6. So here what Peter's doing is he's offering a list of virtues similar to what Paul is doing. I'm actually going to start in verse 5. For this reason, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed, 
from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting that he brings up an issue of salvation again here? Didn't, didn't Paul mention that? He mentioned it, Paul mentioned it in a negative way back in our passage, didn't he? Those who, uh, excuse me, those who practice the, I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We talked about all those negatives, those excesses. He said, those who practice things will not enter the kingdom of God. And over here, when, he, when Peter's offering a positive list, he ends by saying, in this way, in, in, in paying attention to these things and seeking to add these things to your life, you will be richly provided for you, for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So these are pretty central issues, don't you think? This is pretty central to the definition of how we live the Christian life. And I think that comes out there. Even though that may not change our definition of self-control, I think that gives us a sense of the weight of what self-control ought to be like in our lives. But does, does anything help us understand better what self-control is? Well, I looked at a few passages outside the Bible as well. We have a number of texts in Greek that are outside the Bible that come from this time period that can be helpful sometimes in defining terms that are in the Bible, especially ones that don't come up a whole lot. And so in, some of you may have heard of a book of, called uh, Maccabees, and uh, it relates a history of the Jewish people in between the time of the Old Testament and when Jesus came. It tells some of those stories. Now, we don't have that in our Bibles, and yet it was written about that time, and it uses one of these words. It's talking about a man named Eleazaros, okay? We, we would probably say Lazarus in the, in the uh, New Testament. We have a man named that. So this guy, Eleazaros, or Lazarus, uh, was being tortured. He was being tortured for his Jewish faith, and he was being tortured specifically because he was keeping the law. He, he was not eating pork, basically, is what comes up in the passage. He, he was refraining from eating pork because he wanted to keep God's law. And so let me read you a passage, uh, some of his words. He's talking to the king who's putting him through this torture. He says, So then, get your torture wheels ready and fan the fire more vehemently. I do not so pity my old age as to subvert the ancestral laws by my own act. I will not play false to you, O law that trained me, nor will I renounce you, beloved self-control. I will not put you to shame, philosophical reason, nor will I deny you honored priesthood and knowledge of our law code. Okay, so here, in his desire to keep God's word, he says, I'm not going to renounce you self-control. So he's using our term for us. And I think it's important to see both here that he's not just talking about restraining himself. Okay, so he's not doing something. He's not going to eat that pork that the king is trying to force him to do just to make him violate the law. But why? Because he wants to keep God's word. Okay? He's not just holding himself back from something. He's got a goal out ahead of him. He's got something he wants more than life itself. And later in the passage, he does die of the torture because he had set himself so on keeping God's word. Let's take a Christian context, for example. 
the book of 2 Clement, okay? So this is the oldest Christian sermon that we have, okay? It was written about 120 to 140 AD, so about 30 to 50 years after the disciples, uh, the apostles were off the scene, okay? So the, these guys have moved on, and it was possibly written, we think, to the church in Corinth. And if you remember about Corinth, there were a lot of problems there, especially problems with sexual immorality, okay? And that came up in the, the Fruit of the Spirit passage here. But in uh, 2 Clement 15, the author says this, Now, I do not think that the advice I have given you about self-control is unimportant. A long way of saying, this, the advice I gave you is really important, okay? Self-control is really important. In fact, those who follow this advice will not regret it, but will save both themselves and me as their advisor. For it is not, uh, for it is not sm a small reward to redirect an errant man and perishing soul so that it may be saved. Okay? So the way Clement is willing to talk about self-control is this is an issue of our salvation. Okay? Now, self-control doesn't get us saved. But just like Paul, he talked about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment, self-control in one way is so definitive of the Christian life. Now, we, we also read that a similar thing like that in 1 Timothy, don't we? Where Paul says, keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Okay? So again, Paul there is seeing the teaching of God's word, the teaching of God's ways as being essential for the salvation of his hearers. Okay? It's, it's not just about, about getting in at the front end. Okay? If any of you have read Pilgrim's Progress, it's not just about getting in at the gate. We have to persevere down this long road of faith, and part of that is self-control. So, what we've done is we've looked at the word in the context, right? We've gotten a basic definition. Then we've looked at a few other passages, and I think they didn't necessarily change our definition, did they? But they really pressed home for me the importance that self-control has for the Christian life. Are there any other things related to this? Uh, I'm going to pass over a couple of these things, but I think the next step that would probably be best to do if you're wanting to say this is think of what are some synonyms? What are some other words that the Bible uses? For example, when Josh read the call to worship today from Isaiah, it talked about God restraining his anger. Okay, we think of restraint and self-control. Those words are related. So following through on some of those ideas might help us better understand the word. But we're going to take, take some time here to uh, pass over this and uh, jump to a conclusion on defining this. I think that if we're going to define self-control, we have to have both a negative and a positive aspect. A negative and a positive aspect. So a negative view of self-control would be restraint, control, okay? Just using the basic word itself. Self-control is a spirit-empowered restraint of excess. That's how we defined it earlier. But if we had to define it in a positive sense, kind of like uh, Eleazaros there, there's, there seemed to be something positive about his self-control. It wasn't just, I don't do that, I don't do that, I don't do that. He had something set out before him, didn't he? And like the rest of those scriptures were pointing out, they were setting out the kingdom of God. Inheritance in the kingdom of God is the aim. We ought to be self-controlled so that we inherit the kingdom of God. That's what's at stake. That's what's out in front of us here. And so 
there's a purposeful discipline to self-control, isn't there? It's not just don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Don't do this because you're fixed on getting that, okay? So think back to our example earlier on. What would keep someone like Michael Phelps in the swimming pool for five or six hours a day, swimming over 50 miles a week, eating 12,000 calories a day? It's not pleasant to eat that much, really. <laughs> what, what would cause someone to do that? To say no to so many things, it's because he had a gold medal in mind. He had victory in mind. And how much better is inheritance in the eternal kingdom of God where the very streets are paved with gold? That's what we're setting out uh, to find. So self-control is a spirit-empowered mastery of our desires for a greater goal. That's what I wanted us to see as far as a definition. But then how do we become more self-controlled? I think that we're going we're to look at two things here. We're going to look at first the fact that this is a fruit of the Spirit, and then we're going to look at this concept of a means of grace. Okay? We're going to look at a fruit, this is a fruit of the Spirit, and then we're going to look at the idea that this is a means of grace. And, and by pointing that out, I simply mean the Spirit has to produce this in our lives and wants to. And yet I think there are things we can actually do to be ready for that. Okay? We can't make ourselves more self-controlled necessarily because if this is at the desire level, how do I change my desires? That's a very difficult thing to do. And yet I think we can put ourselves in a position to let the Spirit work more powerfully in our lives. Uh, many of you know I, I work at, at night right now. I work night shifts. And uh, early on, it was really tough to stay awake. It really was tough to stay awake. I know many others have worked at nights as well and, and know that. Um, uh, I came across something, though, that really helped me. Uh, and and the, here, here's the difficulty using yourself as an example of self-control, but the, the, this is why I give you a kind of a funny example here. Okay? One thing I started doing is I just started taking cold showers. Flat out, like not lukewarm, like cold. Okay? Like I put it on cold, like all the way over there. Now, it's, it's funny, and my wife laughs at me every time that I do it, and yet I've been doing it every shower for over a year now, and it's great. Now, now you're all thinking, that's, that's crazy. A warm shower is my favorite thing of the day, isn't it? Well, it, it used to be mine, too. And I don't normally look forward to getting into the cold shower. I don't. I don't. But I've been doing it for over a year, and yet why do I do it? Why do I say no to this nice, relaxing, warm shower? Because it helps me get my goal, which is I need to stay awake at night and study. That's my one time that I'm able to study. And if I'm falling asleep all night, frankly, that's, that's not, that's not going to cut it. And I've found something that worked for me, okay? I'm not recommending this necessarily for everybody, but it works for me. It gets me awake. I'm energized for multiple hours afterwards. Okay, I'm saying no to something that might be comfortable, something might be more pleasant, because this difficult thing, this difficult thing I'd make myself do every morning, right when I, every morning, <laughs> at 11 o'clock at night, helps me get what I want, helps me get what I need, okay? And, and that's, that's something that I have to remind myself of when the, the freezing cold water is coming down in front of me, and I have to step into it. And yet, I think that's, that's, 
a, just a practical example of what we need to think about in the Christian life because the Christian life's not always easy, is it? Sometimes we're saying no to the easy things because what we want is better. What we want is better, but it might be more difficult. And that's why self-control is so important to the Christian experience. So let's look at this as a fruit of the Spirit. Okay, This whole list, and you can apply what I'm going to say here to this whole list. So if another one of these fruit struck you as uh, something that God wants you to work on in your life, well, what we're about to talk about here is applicable to those things. But these are qualities, these fruit of the Spirit are qualities, traits, characteristics that are produced by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So we call them fruit. Things that come out of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives are love, joy, peace, patience, etc. Okay? These are things that are produced by the Spirit. You don't get apples from orange trees. Okay? An orange tree is going to give you oranges. Okay? The Spirit is going to give you these things. When the Spirit is planted in your life, as He is when God saves us, He's going to work these things. The Spirit brings forth desires. Didn't we see that in Galatians 5.17? If you've still got your fingers there. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. Okay? So the Spirit is about producing certain desires in us, desires for an eternal kingdom that outweighs the things of this world. Okay? We desire to see and be with Jesus Christ, whom no one in this room has ever met in the flesh. We desire to be with him. Why? Because the Spirit has put this desire and is working this desire out in us. Okay? The Spirit brings forth desires that are in keeping with the nature of the Spirit. Okay? He's not going to give us desires for evil things. Those desires come from the flesh. Okay? The desires of the Spirit keep in the, with the nature of God. And this produce, produces all these wonderful fruit in our lives. We can't earn merit or achieve the Holy Spirit. Okay? We, don't, we don't earn the Holy Spirit. He's a person. He's not under our control. Salvation is a gift of God to undeserving sinners. A part of salvation is receiving the Holy Spirit. Okay? Over in Romans 8, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with that. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read a passage from that. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Where does this desire for the Father come? Well, it comes from the Spirit working in us. He works these new desires in us. And it's a spirit of freedom. Okay? So that's just... a. We can't control this necessarily, but I do think that even though this is a fruit of the Spirit, this is something the Spirit's going to produce in our lives, there are things that we can be working with in our lives. So we talked about you don't get apples from orange trees, right? But we can work the soil, can't we? Okay? I can plant a seed and I can't make it grow, but I can make the conditions for that growth much more uh, tolerable, much more pleasant, much more profitable. When I, when I was a little kid, I, the first time I remember learning about seeds, I immediately ran into the kitchen 
and had my mom cut open an apple. And we, we pulled all these little apple seeds out of this apple. And I went out in my backyard. My mom had a little garden in the backyard. Now, where I lived in a, like, it was a little su suburban block, the, the backyards all butted up to each other. No one had fences back then, so all the kids just romped around in the backyards. And we had a little garden out there. So right behind the garden, we, we managed to dig in the dirt and get a hole there, and we put these seeds in there. And I knew you gotta, you got to water them, right? So we, we watered them. And for the next few days, I'd water them and water them. And, I didn't get an apple tree, <laughs> okay? I didn't know the first thing about cultivating an apple tree. I just thought, you just got to put the seeds in the ground, and right, they're, they're going to come up. I mean, who knows how many times little kids had been romping over that ground. It was so hard and dry, and it was not the place that you want to plant an apple tree, okay? This was not a good condition for that. And that's similar in our lives. Friends, it's, it's similar. God uses means to accomplish his work in the world. Okay? We love the stories in the Bible where God does something in a, just a supernatural manner. You know, think about, we think about stories like he parted the Red Sea, right? We don't just see oceans opening up. But even there, it talks about how a great wind came down, part of the Red Sea. Okay? Often the way we see God at work in this world is he works through natural means. Now, that doesn't mean he just lets the processes go, like, well, hands off, you know. But he works through certain activities in this world. Seeds that are planted in good, well-watered soil, open to the sun, are going to grow better than seeds that are planted in hard, nutrient-deprived soil where they're hidden from the sun, okay? They're, they're not where they should be. If I just plant it on the side of the house next to the concrete, I'm not going to grow anything there, okay? That's not where you grow plants, and similarly, in our spiritual lives, if we have good, well-cultivated soil of the heart, we're going to be in a much better position to see the fruit of the Spirit coming forth. In other words, we can't earn or merit God's work in our lives. We can't make this happen. But I do believe that in His providence, we can orchestrate our lives to be receptive to His work, more open to His influence. We could call this, in one sense, a spiritual posture. I'm going to, I'm going to recommend two things for us here. When we think about self-control or indeed all of these things, a spiritual posture. Now, now what, what, what would this be? A spirit, maintaining a good spiritual pros, uh, posture. Well, walking daily in God's word, pursuing God in prayer, exercising our spiritual gifts in the body, and being active in the lives of others for the sake of the gospel. Okay? This is actually something the navigators came up with. I just rephrased some of these things. I call it getting the wheel of discipleship going, okay? There's, we're working, we're getting into the Word, and we're, we're, we're pursuing God in prayer, okay? We're walking in the Word and pursuing God in prayer, okay? Even hear this Olympic-like language here. We're walking in the Word, we're pursuing God in prayer, but then we're also exercising our spiritual gifts. God's given us gifts by the Spirit. When we're putting those into exercise to serve the body, and we're active in the lives of others, for the sake of the gospel, I think we're going to be in a spiritual position to be see, see God, see that the, those seeds start growing and producing fruit, okay? So maintaining a spiritual posture, I think that's pretty basic. Most people here probably know that, but I thought it was worth mentioning again that we want to maintain that kind of posture. And I, I was convicted today, where I was uh, teaching on the, uh, the armor of God, and I recognized, you know what? I, I really have not been pursuing God in prayer. I've been praying. I pray. I mean, if you're a Christian, you pray. <laughs> it, it will just come out of you. 
and there's habits in life. You pray before meals and pray before certain things. Yet, I was convicted about my pursuit of God in prayer. If I want to see God more active in my life, I was convicted as I was preparing for this message that I would pursue God in my prayer. Not just pray, that I would pursue God in my prayer. And uh, maybe as we examine our lives, we can say, I could grow in that way. I could make myself more receptive to the work of the Spirit by exercising myself in one of these ways more. But I think the other important aspect of how we get ourselves ready, make ourselves good soil for the fruit of the Spirit to come, is developing a superior satisfaction. Okay? And this is specific to self-control. Um, because as we're thinking about Spirit-empowered uh, work in our, uh, our desires, okay? So the Spirit giving us mastery over our desires for a goal, as we're moving towards a goal, we've got to keep that superior satisfaction in mind. Look at Matthew 13 with me. Okay, this is simple, one-verse parable with so much in it. Okay, and we're just going to skip right across the surface. But it illustrates the point. Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven. Okay, again, remember, those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. People that are developing the fruit of the Spirit will. But So here Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven. That's what we want. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, and then he covered it back up. He covered it over. Then in his joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Okay? Back to our analogy I started with. How much do you think Michael Phelps gives up in order to do what he's got to do to get a gold medal? Okay? This guy sells all that he has out of joy. He knows what he's going to get. He knows how good this treasure is. It gives him such joy, he's willing to sell everything to get that, okay? I think this is essential to self-control. If we're going to maintain walking, pursuing God down the path he has for us, putting other things aside, we have to develop a sense of what's ahead of us. If we find the treasure and we're just like, eh, <laughs> there's some rocks in the ground there. <laughs> Gold is a rock, right? <laughs> there's just some rocks in the ground there. It's, it's not really worth anything. If that's, if that's our attitude towards the kingdom of God, we're not going to be running very hard down that road. We'll be walking down the road, looking at this, looking at that, and who knows, before long, we're, we're way off the road. We're way off God's path for us, aren't we? We're not living a self-controlled life because we have lost our satisfaction with what's ahead of us. So these two things, maintaining a spiritual posture, okay? How are we actually walking down this road? And then remembering what's ahead of us, that this is a joyful, this is an amazing treasure, and I think that uh, when we think about this, how do we do this? How do we put this into effect? Again, so many of these, uh, so many of these sermons in this series have come back to Jesus, which is such a good place to go. Okay? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Okay? This is just right along with the analogy I've been talking about. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. Hear that. Okay? That's, that's important in self-control. Let us also lay aside every weight, things that weigh us down, 
get us off track. Let's lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance. Okay? We're not just lollygagging down the road okay? because that's going to lead us to going off this way and that way. We're running with endurance the race that is set before us. Doing what? Looking to Jesus. Okay? The kingdom of God, we could talk about it, but really, why do we want to be in heaven? We just want to be there to be with friends just because it's going to have pearly gates and streets of gold. No, it's because we want to see Jesus. We want to be with the one who has purchased our souls, who has given his life for us. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And he did this. The very thing we're being called to do, exercise self-control, Jesus did. Okay? For the joy that was set before him... What did he do? He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Consider him, friends. Consider both the treasure that he is and the fact that he has already done what he's calling us to do. Because he's done it, don't you think he can help us do it? It's his very spirit that's come to help us. He can help us now do what he has accomplished in this life. We could, we could say a lot more about this um, topic of self-control, but I think it, it's, it's helpful for us to see back to our definition. It's a spirit-empowered mastery of our desires. We, we're, we're putting aside weights. We're putting aside other things because we've got something better that we're looking forward to. And that's why it's so essential to the definition of how the Christian life works. We're putting aside other things, things that are immediate, things that we used to love, things that may still tempt us to love them, to want them, okay? That was quite a list there, okay? All the sexual immorality and the partying and the power and the, the relational control I can have, those are things that, that we can easily fall back into, but we're putting these things aside and we're pursuing something that's so much better. Since we started with the Olympics, we can end with a story from that. Eric Little is familiar to most of us, right? Because of the movie Chariots of Fire. If you've ever seen it, if you haven't seen it, you need to see it, okay? Movie Chariots of Fire. Uh, a man with Christian conviction who ran for the glory of God. And when it came time to run in the Olympics, he found out his race was on Sunday. And he said, I can't run. I run for the glory of God. And so he, he was of the conviction that running on Sunday would, would be sinful for him. So he did not do it. And he ended up getting another chance to run and went in a different race that was not his race, and yet God empowered him to do this. But he exercised self-control, didn't he? Here's the opportunity for a gold medal in the Olympics. He was the best of the best. He easily could have won this race, and yet he laid this aside. He said, that's going to weigh me down from getting what I really want. And so the Spirit helped him. The Spirit empowered him to master that desire for a gold medal and pursue Jesus at least his conviction of how he should live his Christian life. He said, I don't need a gold medal. I run for the glory of God. I want God more than anything else. But most of us don't know that this actually transferred to the rest of his life. The movie stops there, but Little then went on to serve God in China, serving him among the poor, serving him among the broken, and serving during a time of warfare. Okay? Most people don't know that Eric Little died in a prison camp of what many believe to be a brain tumor 
uh, where he, he could have possibly been saved if he had been back in some place that had modern medicine that could have helped him. And yet here he was living out his life because he was a man, we can see this from the picture, he's a man who had mastered by the power of the Spirit, mastered his desires for the things of the world. So that it doesn't matter. I, I'm, I'm an Olympic gold medalist, but I'm going to go lay my life down among the poor in China. Okay? I think that's a good model for all of us. Jesus is the best model, but it's helpful to have tangible models in this world. What things do we need to be laying down in order to pursue that superior satisfaction? I think this is what self-control is in the text, and, and may the Spirit help us grow in that. Would you pray with me? Our Father, thankful for this chance to study and chance to, to speak about your word and the things you've put on my heart about it. And I ask that your spirit would empower us. We can't do these things on our own. We can't make ourselves more self-controlled. But I pray that, that even as we go from here, that you would show us areas in our life that we can maintain a better spiritual posture, that we can grow in our satisfaction of what lays ahead, eternity with you and how glorious that will be. And that that would help us to displace all the other desires in our lives that would hinder us from pursuing you. So thank you for this study. Thank you for your word that is clear, that teaches us your truth. And in Jesus' name we pray it.